Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's podcast once again comes from the monthly live show that I do at the BFI South Bank, MK3D. Our most recent show was a packed affair. Joanna Hogg, director of the forthcoming The Souvenir Part 2, came on to talk about her love of disaster movies. There was another disaster movie in the shape of Don't Look Up. We spoke to one of its stars, Himesh Patel. And Romola Gary came on to talk about her current horror release, Amulet. Well, it's too much for one podcast, so we've put Joanna Hogg in next week's episode. Right now, sit back and take a front row seat for MK3D, where I'm joined by Himesh Patel and Romola Gary. Hello. Uh, this is our seventh year. I know. I know. Astonishing, isn't it? So, um... Listen, thanks everybody for coming. Uh, you were probably just the usual stuff. You were probably told you come in. If you can wear a mask, we really would like you to do so, just because we really want to keep our audience as safe as possible. Um, thanks everybody for, you know, for turning out. It's lovely to see you. Uh, I want to begin with two birthdays. The first one is that it is our seventh birthday, which <laughs> nobody is more astonished than we are. Remember when we started this, we thought we'd get away with it for about three months. Very first show we did seven years ago, we didn't have any guests at all. Because I said, I just want to see whether we can do this with just me. The answer is we can, but it's not pretty. <laughs> so anyway, we have a guest-packed show tonight, which is fabulous. Now, where's Stuart? Stuart, stand up. Stuart is uh, head of program and acquisitions here at the BFI. And I often end up the show, you know, saying thanks to Nick and thanks to the BFI and thanks to Heather and thanks to Sophie. We never do this to Stuart. Stuart is 21 today. <laughs> now, under normal circumstances, don't sit down yet. <laughs> I haven't finished. I know how much you're not enjoying this and I'm literally going to drag it out, okay? So usually I'd say, look, we'll all sing happy birthday, but obviously, no, 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 wait. Obviously, because of COVID, we don't want people doing that. We're going to do what's now become the MK3D tradition. This is Hedda, who is from Dutchland, okay? In Dutchish, hang on, I'm going to mask up to do this. No, 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 it's fine. No, wait, you, you, no, 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 no. At a distance. Okay. Give me an E. Here we go. Long slow delayed, long slow delayed, long slow delayed in the glory, in the glory, in the glory. Are we still friends? Yeah. It was Sophie that tipped me off, all right? Okay, so anyway, listen, thank you so much. It's lovely to see you all here. We're going to start with ask the audience. As you know, at the moment, the way we're doing this is we get people to send in questions in advance because we can't be sending microphones around uh, the audience. So I have the advantage of having seen the questions in advance, not that there was ever any kind of illusion that I was making this stuff up anyway. So here we go. This came from Max Endersby. Max, are you here? Yeah, good. That's it. All I need to know. When you first became interested in movies, did you ever consider becoming a filmmaker? And very, very simply, no. The reason is this. 
I could no more make a film than fly in the air. I have absolutely no idea how anyone ever manages to get any film made. And if you have made a film, and whether it was a great film or a terrible film, or I was lovely about it or horrible about it, you have done something that I could never do. And I say this to every filmmaker, you would never want to see a film made by critics in general, but me in particular. I do think that you have to kind of draw a line, you know, you're on this side of the fence or you're on that side of the fence. And no, absolutely not. Like uh, Shirley MacLaine in being there, I like to watch. That's what I do. I have nothing but respect for any, even the people that made Rug Suckers from Mars or Sex Lives of the Potato Men all did something I could never do. Something I would not necessarily have wanted to do, but something that I couldn't do. So absolutely not. I, and I, promi I make you this promise right now, I will never make a film. <laughs> and if I do, you can all personally get in touch with me and tell me off, because that would just make me a terrible old hypocrite. <laughs> Good, I'm glad we established that. Number two, from Joe Flockhart. Joe, you here? Yes, thank you. And well done for the hand gesture. Very, very good. Joe's question is, one of my dreams is to produce a stage production of Trust, which is the Hal Hartley film, which I love. I adore the screenplay and feel that many scenes are very theatrical. What film would you like to see translated to the stage? So this is interesting. So we were talking about this in the production meeting beforehand, and Nick had mentioned that Force Majeure is on at the Donmar, which would make a really, really interesting play. And Nick was saying that he had been to see Barbarian Sound Studio, which again, I, I hadn't seen it, but I've heard that it worked very well uh, on stage. Here's the thing that I want, but it's already happened. I just wish that I was around when it happened. Nick and I made a Secrets of Cinema some years ago about disaster movies. And one of the things we were talking about was action spectaculars and Ben-Hur. I want to have seen the original theatrical production of Ben-Hur in which they did the chariot race on stage. And they did it like this. They had these roller things, they had horses, like literally running along on the, and then a cyclorama going along behind them. And people who were there say it was astonishing, like 3D cinema had nothing on it. Because you were near enough to the horses that you could smell them. And, you know, if they crack the whip out above the stage, that's what I would have loved to have seen. So I wish that I had been around, because before disaster cinema, which we'll talk about later on in the show, before, you know, action-adventure cinema, they had that. Theatre did it first, and I'd love to have seen that original production of Ben-Hur. Finally, this, this is from Maddie PC. Maddie, you here? Was that a yes? Oh, hey, how you doing? Hello. Out of all the scores you've heard in the past year, which one stands out most? And what do you think will win? And do you think it will win any awards? Well, here's, here's the really interesting thing. My favorite score of last year was Eiko Ishibashi's score for Drive My Car, which is just brilliant. I think it's the best score I heard last year. I know that it's not going to win an Oscar because it hasn't been shortlisted for the Oscars. The Oscar shortlist for composers is 15 strong. The BAFTA shortlist for composers for original score is 15 strong. That makes 30 possible nominations. Guess how many women are in there? More than you'd expect, it's one. <laughs> one in the Oscars, which is, I mean, there's something really, really depressing about this. In a year in which you had like the need to decide score for the reason I jump, and you had that, it's, I think, you know, as everything's moving forward, it's about time that the, uh, you know, the score category got its house in order. Because it really is 30 possible nominations and only one of them is one. They go, oh, it's, well, it's all right, you know, Hilda Goodenough won, so that's okay, so now you won't have anything for the next 10 years. But if you haven't heard that, it's absolutely brilliant. Now, two things coming up. I've been asked to mention that Nick and I have been doing this uh, Radio 4 program, and basically I was told, say something nice about screenshot. Have you all been listening? Yeah. How's it going? Yeah. What do you think? Is that a ringing endorsement? <laughs> We're very pleased with it. Um, we got two more. We got two more in this run. We just did the film noir one. We got the one shot thing next week, and then we got the thing, the Sesame Street episode, which is good. The Sesame Street episode is great. It's going to be great. We did the David Bowie episode, which was fantastic. Until this winter, was talking about David Bowie. Anyway. 
If you get a chance, please do tune in. It keeps us employed, uh, and uh, and it's a great show, and we're very proud of it, and it's really, really good, and we've really enjoyed it, and Nick's producing it. And, and then the other thing I was going to say is there is an event at the BFI IMAX. It is the BFI IMAX, isn't it? It's fine. Neil Brand has done this. It's the score for this extraordinary piece of cinema. He had originally written it as a fairly simple score, and the BFI came to him and said, look, can you beef it up? You make it orchestral. So he's done that, and it's going to be performed Thursday, the 27th of January at the BFI Max. If you're a regular here, you'll know that Neil is the most brilliant musician. He's the most brilliant composer. I've had the great pleasure of playing with him on many occasions, and it's always, it's always a real treat. But to see live music performed with, uh, with, with movies is a wonderful thing. So if you get a chance, Thursday, 27th of January at the BFI IMAX, which is that huge big building just over there. Come along and see Neil Brand perform the score to this extraordinary piece of cinema. Now, two other things before we get to our first guest. Two people that we've lost since we were last together. I mean, many, but two notable, two particularly notable. I'm digging myself a hole here. Many notable people, two of whom are Peter Bogdanovich. If you were listening to the Radio 5 show, we did an interview with Peter Bogdanovich last year about Buster Keaton, and it was a really lovely interview, because Bogdanovich, amongst all the other things in his career, had made this really interesting film about uh, Buster Keaton. So if you get a chance, that's still available on the podcast. And, of course, we lost Sidney Poitier. Rather than saying anything, let's just show this clip. I know you've all seen it before. I know you've all seen it a million times before. It kind of bears repeating. Martin, I want you to take Mrs. Corbett over to the funeral parlor. And would you run Virgil down to depot? Uh, the Virg here, Chief, he thinks that Harvey's innocent. <laughs> well, I'll be damned. Could I talk to you about it in private? No, you can't talk to me about it in private, see, because I got Corbett's wallet right here in my hand. We took it from Harvey Overs. You don't think he gave it to him, do you? I don't know, but Overs could have come along after the crime, found it, picked it up. I don't know. That's what the boy said he did. Well, I'm sorry, ma'am, but I said different. Well, when I examined the deceased, it was obvious that the fatal blow was struck from an angle of 17 degrees from the right, which makes it almost certain the person who did it is right-handed. So what? Old Harvey's left-handed, Chief. Everybody in town knows that. Yeah, uh, that, that's what we figured out, Chief. Uh, Harvey's a lefty, uh-huh. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a nigger boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs! Well, Mr. Wood, take Mr. Tibbs, take him down to the depot, and I mean boy like now. I'll have the FBI lab send you the report on this. Not that it'll make any difference. I'll take that. I'm sending it in personally. I know this, this sounds like an obvious thing to say, but have you ever seen any actor do more with less in terms of the facial expressions. I mean, it, that close-up, it's so remarkable because he's doing so much by doing so little. It's just, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's a total masterclass. Like I said, I know everyone's seen it before, but it's so eloquent and it's just uh, lovely to see it again on the big screen. Anyway, so time now uh, for our first guest. Let's start by showing you a trailer for a new movie, which is uh, Coming to cinemas very soon. Uh, I just saw it a week or so ago, and it re really got under my skin. Uh, it's a great trailer for a really good film. Take a look at this. There are many like you, Thomas, who seek refuge here. This is Magda. Her mother lives on the top floor. She's very ill. Why me? You're a builder, right? That's what you said? You try to make things bearable for them. She needs companionship. Mother won't like it. 
Victor is young, Thomas. She could become attached. What's wrong with her? It has to be this way. I'm afraid. Did you kill people in the war? What is happening to me? Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you know what a demon is? She belongs to it. How are you, Thomas? Settling in? <laughs> I love that. And believe me, the film is every bit as good. Um, uh, it's directed by Romla Gary. She is our first guest tonight. Please welcome Romla to the stage. <laughs> that trailer gets creepier every time I see it, and I've seen the film. So, uh, firstly, congratulations on the movie. It played at Fright Fest, the uh, most important uh, horror film festival, well, anywhere in the world, probably. What was that experience like, playing to that audience? Yeah, it was, am it was amazing. Um there had obviously been a slight gap <laughs> since Sundance. Um, yeah, the film was in COVID isolation, <laughs> so it had been a while. And so the experience of seeing it at all was incredible, but also, you know, on that screen and in that environment with that audience who responded very warmly was, um, yeah, was, was amazing. It was very emotional. Now, obviously, the audience here won't have seen it. I imagine no one here has seen it yet, have you? Yeah. Yeah. A few have. For those who haven't, Tell us what the film's about. Uh, so it's about a young man, Thomas, played by Alex Secarano, who is sort of down and out in London. Um, he is uh, invited, invites himself to a in, in, into a sort of derelict house with a young woman, Magda, played by Carla Yuri, uh, by an elderly nun, played by Imelda Staunton. And um, once there, he realizes that um, that Magda is somewhat in um, uh, under the possession or under con the control of um, uh, a demonic force in the house. Her, her mother, it turns out, is a demonic force. But at the halfway point in the film, everything that you understand about all of the characters in the film sort of changes and it becomes something of a puzzle box which kind of unravels uh, at the halfway point. The film works on a number of different levels. I mean, it's really creepy. It's really atmospheric. But it also has a very interesting uh, gender politics. It's a film which kind of, it doesn't play out the way you expect it to play out. Um, can you say, without giving away too much, can you say anything about what you were trying to do with the gender politics of the film? Yeah, well, when I, when I sat down to write it, I didn't sort of have any sort of particular sense of, of, of what I was trying to do on a, on a conscious level, but I think I knew that I wasn't that interested in writing a film with a, a hero. I think, uh, for me, it was interesting to have a male protagonist, somebody who had, had, has come into a space that he, want, he wants to protect a woman because he reveres women. And actually, because he reveres women, because he love, loves the idea of women, he's going to protect that idea uh, very, very strongly and actually becomes a threat to women because of his uh, reverence for, for women. So it's not the idea of a kind of man who is a danger to women because he's an outsider because he's a you know a, a, a somebody who, who's a misogynist he's he's potentially his potentially is sort of his relationship with women is more complicated than that he sort of loves women and because of that is potentially a threat to them I'm going to show a clip from the film because the thing that the film manages to do beautifully is that it balances this kind of sense of growing dread there's this presence in the attic you kind of don't really know what it is but you've got an idea and because we're working in the horror genre, there are certain moments that, you know, kind of really give you a, a jump. So I'm going to show a scene uh, that works on a number of levels, not least because it reminds me of a flat that I lived in in Manchester 
in, in the 1980s with surprising clarity. Let's take a look. seen enough horror movies to know that any jump scare is hard earned. That's about the seventh time I've seen that clip but every time it makes me jump. Do you take great pleasure in that? Great pride in that. <laughs> yeah. So that thing about getting the balance between the atmosphere and that sort of stuff right, I mean you, I, I'm right in thinking you're a great fan of horror films. Yeah, yeah, I've always loved horror and I think for me, but for me I I think the films that really affected me when I was growing up had a lot of creature work in them and then also a body horror as well. I really love Cronenberg. So for me, quite a lot, I mean, there are jump scares like that in the film, but there is quite a lot of stuff that's about the body and about yeah. transformation as well and about birth. And those, um, you can sort of see a tiny bit of that in the trailer. So those were things that kind of, I guess, become I, the, the sort of um, the, the climax of the film at the end. The, so what are your favorite Cronenbergs, like The Brood and... Yeah, The Fly. I mean, Dead Ringers is probably my favourite yeah. because I think that that film, more than although it doesn't have the most explicit stuff in it, for me that's really that's the core of his kind of emotional work in terms of what it, you know what the body how how the body relates to like uh, relationships and the sort of relationship in this film is similarly quite tortured and and um, you know there, there's a great sort of potential for romance and also a kind of substrata of kind of deep pain and anguish which is one of the reasons I really love that film as well. There's also I mean I I, I know people critics do this as a sort of shorthand they talk about about the you know the films that are, there's a there's a definite element of Lynch. I mean there were bits of in there that really reminded me of Eraserhead. As we get into the final movement, which I'm not going to ask you to describe because I want people to to move into that corridor of their of their own. Was there anything that was particularly inspiring to you? Because I was literally sitting there, and I'm mean, sitting there going. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we talked a lot about possessions, Zalowski's possession when we were making it, because of the, exactly because of the, you know, capacity to have a final moment or a final act that takes the film completely out of one space and into another. Yeah. And obviously we had been working in the horror space, but it goes to quite a psychedelic ending, I suppose, and whether or not you can introduce something in the final m moments of a film. I personally really enjoy that. I really have, you know, I, I feel like, you know, when, when I go on that journey, I'm, I'm quite happy for a piece of music or a piece of art to kind of rise to a real crescendo at the end yeah. so it, that was the kind of um, leap of faith that we were taking that we would be able to go like all the way as it were with that idea and we did <laughs> I th no you did and you did it brilliantly and I think it really does well. I mean I love the fact that you mentioned Zwolski's Possession because that's one of my favourite films, when we did the history of horror season here, we showed it, we had a fainting, had to be carried out. Then sometime later I did a screening with Jake and Dinos Chapman at the Tate. We had another fainting, somebody had to be carried out. And then I had the great pleasure of interviewing Carlos Rambaldi, who did the special effects on it. And I said, can we talk about possession? He went, oh, oh. <laughs> and then Sam Neill, just last year, I said, can you talk about possession? He went, well, it's like everyone who worked on that movie is like in PTSD. <laughs> yeah. It's... It's, I love, because it's so primal, it's so primal, and I, I think the end of your film kind of does take that leap of faith. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, obviously the actors probably are quite, you know, being an actor watching that film, I, I watch it and love it and also watch it and feel deeply for what they, I'm sure they went through in order to kind of create that relationship in that movie. And, I'm, and similarly, Alec and Carla had, particularly Alec, had to go to some quite extreme places in this film. And um, it was interesting to be on the other side of that and see, you know, what an act of extreme vulnerability and trust it takes for an actor to get to give you a performance like that, which often films like this do require because there's kind of a great deal of emotional subtext as well as obviously what they're trying you know, the, just the sort of bare fact of, like, you know, being covered in blood and screaming and, you know, people standing over you going, like, oh, can we just move his shirt a bit because we want to see it bursting out, you know. <laughs> does, it, does it help that, as an actor, can you talk to your actors in a different way rather than the director who hasn't acted? Well, I mean, you, 
I think there's part, there's a big part of me going into it which was like, well, you know, this is the thing I'm not going to have to worry about, you know. But actually, of course, every single actor wants to be directed completely differently. Right. So, you know, I speak to an actor as I would want to be spoken to. So I'm like, well, this is the story. Quite pragmatic. Not to, you know, try not to be too controlling. Hopefully quite collaborative, but also quite like, well, this is the story. Let's carry it together. But other actors are completely different. They're method actors. They don't want to know anything about the creation of the story or the narrative. Right. or They just are only focused on that tiny little bit of the their own, you know, their their character, and so it's not at all helpful that they're, you're there going, oh, can you give me four or five options? You know, they don't they don't want to do that. Can you tell me something about the music? Because when I was watching it, I was thinking this score is really, really great, and it's really getting under my skin. Who did the score? So the the music was um, composed by Sarah Anglis, um, who I believe you know. Sarah Anglis, yeah. play. Is Sarah, Sarah, are you here? Yes, it's only. You are. Hello. So Sarah Anglis, who is the, the, the best theremin player I have ever seen in my life, and also, at my 50th birthday, played the musical Saw, which was a life-changing experience, plays with a brilliant uh, band called Space Dog, who are the weirdest, it's like if David Lynch was a musical act with a mechanical crow, that's what Space Dog would be like. And, but the score is just, is just great. Tell me about how you and Sarah worked together on that. Uh, I think I just was very uh, open to um, having something quite unusual for the music. Um, and um, as is, is often the way when you're being introduced to people, like, you know, they're sending you clips of things that would, you know, feel like they're in the same wheelhouse or other, you know, they've, they've composed for other horrors. And then I, w I was like, I just, I'm not interested in doing something that feels like somebody's doing the same thing again. Um, and I came across uh, Sarah's music. I was introdu actually introduced to it by a friend, and she she doesn't she doesn't uh, didn't at that time compose film and television. So I sent her a note and I said, you know, would you be interested in in composing for the film? And she amazingly said yes, which was incredible. But also I think because I hadn't been through that process before at all, I essentially collaborated you know, with the composition and the sound editing are, are essentially one in this film. You know, we didn't yeah, really yeah. sort of, we didn't really work separately. You know, um, there was a, a very free flowing dialogue between all of those different departments and, you know, the, the sound effects and the environment of the house and the, and the music essentially become one. And that was partly to do with the fact that, you know, I, I didn't have a set idea of how that relationship should or would work. And also because of Sarah's background and the kind of music that she makes. Yeah, I think it's a, I mean, the soundtrack of the film is so great because it really, like I said, it really, really got under my skin. I really enjoyed the movie. I was, it was such a, it was such a treat to see something have the guts to go the way it did. And I'm, so it opens next month. Is it February the 4th here? Yeah, well, it, the, from the 28th. From the yeah, 28th. And actually this coming Friday, we're doing an event here at Very the good. EFI, a preview with a Q&A. So if you haven't seen it and you're interested in seeing it, come down and see it. Do Friday. come along, because honestly, it's, it's, really, it's really, really great. Don't read critics in advance, because you don't need to know anything about it. But just come along and it'll, it's, it's terrific. I asked you to pick a, a guilty pleasure for us as well, which is you know my, one of my, the things that I do here. You picked a film that I have to say has come up many times, and the thing that surprises me about it is, is it a guilty pleasure or is it a stone cold classic? What did you choose? Well, I actually I did say that I think to um, um, Zoe, who was asking me the, the questions of, of PR, because I was like, what does that mean? Yeah, a guilty? Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, it's I a cheap gag that we've been using for seven years. It's just it's fine, you know. <laughs> So I, cho I chose Point Break, which um, is, I, I mean, I chose it mainly just because I think it is one of the most, like, entirely enjoyable films yeah. ever made. If I, you know, I think it was New Year, it was New Year's not last year when everything was cancelled and my husband and I were like, what are we going to do tonight? We just drunk loads of margaritas, frozen margaritas, like out of the blender and watch Point Break. And honestly, it was like the best night of my entire life. Um, it's, a, it's a great film. I saw it at a very, um, like, important sort of moment um, because this is like peak Keanu. And I think it was like 91 it came out. So I was 80, so I would have been 11. So it was a quite an important changing moment in my life, a girl to a woman, and um, yeah, and he came in at quite a significant moment in my life. I, say, I was a grown man. It was quite an important changing moment. In <laughs> 
Um, we're going to show a clip, not least because for many years you couldn't play this theatrically in the UK. The theatrical rights lapsed, and we kept trying to show it down in Cornwall as part of the surf uh, surfposium. You couldn't show it on the big screen. So there was, a, there was a big period when it was only seen at home, and a lot of people have only seen it on video. So we're going to show one of the most visceral scenes from it. It is a very famous uh, scene. It's a chase sequence. Nowadays, people are kind of really used to, you know, fluid camera and all the rest of it. I remember seeing this in the cinema and just not only being knocked out, but how on earth are they actually doing this? So here we go, a great sequence from Point Break. It's just, it, you know, you have, have you ever fired a gun in the air going, ah? I mean, the whole, literally, the whole of Hot Fuzz, you know, is a tribute to that and Bad Boys 2. And, and I think the fact, the genius of that scene is it has survived them doing that, you know, have you ever fired a gun in the air? Have you ever jumped through the air firing two guns at the same time? You've never seen Bad Boys 2? Anyway, sorry, I will stop doing But it's, it's such visceral filmmaking. I love Catherine Bigelow. The first date that my wife and I went on, she said it's not a date, but it was because we got married afterwards, um, <laughs> was near dark. Okay. So Catherine Bigelow is kind of, you know, part of our DNA. But it just hasn't, it hasn't got old, has it, that film? No, and I think that there's like, I mean, there's almost, there's almost nothing about the, how they plan the crimes or <laughs> like, there's nothing about that. It's just amazing surf sequences, incredible chase sequences. And, you know, this sense of like, you know, two guys like facing off against each other in this like whirlwind of like incredibly exciting masculinity. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it just. Uh, it's a love story, isn't it? I mean, that's the whole point. You can't shoot him because he's in love with him. Yeah, and, and actually, and, and you know, also amazing Laurie Petty in that film, incredible. You know, that was the first time that I had seen, you know, a sort of female love interest look that way, be that way on screen. You know, she's this very physical kind of kick ass character. And I think, yeah, it was a real revelation to me. And also, I just think, think the film is like, absolutely suffused with a kind of lustful energy yeah. which you know is is rare in an action movie and you know potentially as a result of having a, a female director yeah no i think it's a brilliant choice by a great filmmaker and i said it's just lovely to to, to see a bit of it up on, on on the big screen there so what's next for you so the film is coming out here but what are you what are you doing now because as you said obviously there's been this long kind of hiatus with covid and everything what are you, what are you doing now well i'm i'm hopeful to have one of my other many <laughs> screenplays that are all like piling up on my desk as crashing to the ground i'm hopeful to do more uh, writing and directing yeah so that's um hopefully coming up soon. Okay, well, I wish you every luck with Amulet because I think it's a terrific film and I think people will really be startled by it and I mean that in a, in a really good way. So thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so you much. Can, on the 20, so it's the 21st, you're back here? Yeah, it's on Friday. Friday. Yeah. Do come back and see the film and hear Romler talking about it. So Romler Gary, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
So, um, uh, how many of you have seen Don't Look Up? Very good. You want to see a clip? Here we go. And then they made us wait for over seven hours, but they never even called us in. I couldn't believe it. Well, of course they didn't call you in. Kate, have you watched any news today? No, I've been pretty wrapped up in our project. Turn on your TV right now. President Arlene is in the middle of an all-time shitstorm. Sheriff Wade Conlin was already a controversial nominee with no law degree and a record of shoot first and ask questions later. You watching? But with his background as a nude life model in yeah. college yeah, now I'm watching coming it right to now. light, the White House is in full crisis mode. And get this, I found five former students who were willing to go on record that Conlin got noticeably aroused when he posed for their drawing class. I have no shame in what I did. Now, should I say noticeably aroused or engorged? Because I don't want this to read like a clickbait. You know, this is a real article. I do. Kate, can I get something from you, please? <clears throat> Sorry. Out of sorts tonight. Can we just have this conversation? Because I feel like we're skirting around this whole thing. Do you have an issue with my mom? Is that what this is all about? Because. You can't tell me what's going on? It's just the protocol. Please, please, don't worry. Oh, Marshall got a 172 on his LSATs, and we're celebrating. Way to go, Marshall. Way to go. I'm proud of you, buddy. Thank you, Dad. Miss you. <laughs> hey, how's, how's Evan feeling? Are, are the new meds working out? I'm a solid four. Oh, he's a solid four. Well, that's, that's better than last month, right? Just, just remember to speak up in the meeting tomorrow. Okay, yeah, you know how you I get will. so quiet when it's time to take credit and you just kind of like... She asked you if you were a lesbian. She did not say that you were a lesbian. It was a question. Look, I'm, I, can I sit down with your mom to have lunch in like seven months? Seven? That's weirdly specific and, and distant. I really enjoyed that film. You can see him in uh, Don't Look Up on Netflix. You can see him in Station Eleven on uh, HBO and you all loved him in Yesterday. Please welcome to the show Himesh Patel. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So Don't Look Up is really good fun, but the thing, the thing about it is, it's close enough to the bone to, to, to you think, because the whole thing is, there's an asteroid or meteor. It's coming to Earth. Scientists look at it, they go, it's coming to Earth. It's going to destroy everything. And the politician's response is, no! No, it isn't. Yeah. And the, the whole thing. And so I was watching it going, yeah, it's funny, you know, and of course it's made, it's to do with, with uh, you know, the climate crisis, but then suddenly has this relevance because of COVID. But there is this thing slightly behind it, which is it's only that far away from the way things really are, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's where I, I kind of, I don't know whether Adam McKay has a time machine or something, <laughs> or just he, he just knows how to tap into those uncomfortable feelings that we have about how we'd actually probably respond if that happened all the varying layers of uh, idiocy that would, would reveal themselves one may argue have revealed themselves over the last two years and um yeah it's, it's strange to me it's been about two years since i did my first audition for the role so it predates covid and uh and i think I know that Adam and his team were just sort of marveling as, as, as the response to COVID sort of rolled out and they, he was just sat on this script going, do I make this or not now? You know, is this going to seem too, too close to the bone, as you said? Because there is that whole thing about, you know, science denial, about denial of facts. There's a lovely scene which the president is told, you know, how certain is it? It's certain. Well, how certain? Well, like 99 point. Ah, so not certain. Not 100%. Yeah. Not 100% certain. Let's say seven. Let's round it down to 70%. <laughs> and, you know, it, it does that, that thing about, yes, this is funny, but it's also kind of scary that that is the point that we're at. And we seem to be getting, I think, now more and more comedies which are very specifically you know, contemporary political companies. And there's something quite appropriate about that for Netflix, for watching stuff at home. I know I had a theatrical release, but I know a lot of people are watching it at home. And actually, it's kind of the perfect environment to watch it, because you'll be on a news channel one minute watching somebody spout this nonsense, and then you see it in the film. Yeah, and there's... Uh Sometimes you you can watch a movie, but you'll notice the people around you are only half watching the movie. They're on their phones, and you know, with this one, I was uh, 
I didn't because I, I didn't want to be that person because it's I'm in the movie. <laughs> I don't want to be like, guys, you've got to concentrate. <laughs> there was part of me that was like, there's a lot of stuff in here that is just little details that are a nod to the sort of minutiae of how we behave in modern society that I just think are so well observed. And um, and yeah, it's it's been fantastic. The response, I mean, has been really amazing. And an absurdly star-studded cast. I mean, it would be yeah. simpler to list the people who aren't in the film. How did, is there any, is that, you know, is it worrying if you suddenly look at Leonardo and Merrill and, you know, all these people that I'm not on first name terms with? Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I only worked with uh, Jennifer and, and Leo DiCaprio, and um, still weird saying that. And, um, say it again, because I like the sound of it. Yeah, I, I worked with Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio. No, you didn't say Leonardo. You said Leo. That, Leo. Was, the, that was the thing. Oh, I right, that. <laughs> Leo. Lee. L. L. Lee. <laughs> um, Do you ring him? Go. Hey, Leo. How's yeah, it going? L. Um, Are yeah. you mates? No, no, I don't. I don't have any contact details for. I don't. Uh, we we worked together for half a day on. on yeah, that's half a day longer than I've worked with him. Sure, exactly. So I, you know, it, so it's strange for me to have then not met half the cast who I then met at the premiere. Just surreal. Like Meryl Streep said hello to me. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, um, how did it, what, what did how relive that moment for? We me? were we were lined up. They did this. Uh, it was like an indoor red carpet and then they had this big don't don't look up uh, like a, I don't know like a big poster sort of thing or like the three letters were in 3D or something I was in the days I can't remember <laughs> and uh, they lined up the cast who had attended were sort of lined up on on this podium to take a big cast photo and she sort of just turned around and said Himesh nice to, nice to meet you and then went back to her day <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile I was just my life changed. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I went backstage after we'd done that. We were waiting to be introduced on stage, and then they did the premiere. I walked into the green room. Donna, my publicist, was there, said, uh, she wasn't there, but uh, said, uh, there's a green room over there, you can sit in there. And I went in, and it was just Leo and Meryl Streep. <laughs> no one else was in there. <laughs> just kind of shuffled over and <laughs> quietly sat in a chair. <laughs> and they both spoke to me, thankfully. <laughs> just weird, a weird moment in my life. We can also see at the moment in Station Eleven. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, another strangely prescient TV show. That I, we started working on, again, two years ago before the pandemic. It's based on a, a novel which... which uh, a lot of people I know who actually found it during the COVID uh, pandemic because it, it's about the world 20 years after a pandemic, a far worse pandemic that has killed everyone within a day. Uh, it's about a, a group of people um, uh, 20 years after the fall of, of society, basically. And, um, and I play a character called Jeevan who um, at the very beginning of the story, we meet him on the day that everything happens, that the world ends. Uh, he meets this little girl uh, at the theater and ends up taking her under his wing and ends up with her as the world is ending around them. And, uh, and then the story picks up. It's largely about her as, as 20 years older. And she's part of a traveling uh, a group of people called the Traveling Symphony who, who travel around performing Shakespeare to people. And you know they're sort of the last bastion of art in this world that has ended, and it's about different lives intersecting through time and through all these you know human uh, connections. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, complex but but uh, hopeful story. You know, it's it's a lot of people can sort of see it and go, oh, it's about a pandemic. I don't want to go near it, obviously, and that's completely understandable. But but really, it's only the first episode that has moments that really cut close to home in terms of what we've all been through. From that moment, it's, it's really about hope. It's about how we find the best in each other and, and about art surviving no matter what. So it's a wonderful, it's a 10-parter, and it'll be on Stars Play here in the UK. I want to show a clip from yesterday, which is a film that I absolutely loved. I'm a big Richard Curtis fan anyway, and a big Beatles fan. And this kind of you know, brought these two things together. 
Sanjeev Bhaskar has been on the show a few times and regulars here will know that we've shown this clip before, but it just never ceases to crack me up. Anybody who hasn't seen it, the setup of yesterday is that your character wakes up and is the only person in the world who remembers or has heard of the Beatles. Nobody else knows about them, which is the perfect, you know, 15-word pitch. Here is a clip in which you are playing to your parents a song that they have never heard, indeed nobody else has ever heard before. You all know what this is. It's worth seeing again. Here we go. Right, this is called Let It Be. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking... Oh, oh, sorry, love, I'll get it. Mm. Good start, love. Very pretty. Oh, Terry, you coming, love? Nice oh, it's Terry! Oh, Hello. Terry! Hiya. Terry! Hey. Jack's just playing us a new song. Oh, really? I thought, I thought he'd given up. Yeah, no, well, he's got some new songs. What's this one called? Uh, leave It Be. Let It Be. Oh, excellent. Well, rock on, Jack. <laughs> oh, it's not very rocky, but... <clears throat> when I find myself in times of trouble... Would like a drink, Terry? Dad. Well, I'd already heard that bit. Sorry, Jack. Your dad's a rude man. Y'all get a beer, please, Jake. Excellent, right. Ah. Carry on, Jacko. I'll be back. Can I get it in a glass? Glass it is. <clears throat> what, is everyone else home? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hurry it up, darling. You're losing the crowd. Okay. <laughs> when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Jack. That's me. Sorry. My fault. Oh, it's Marge. Oh. Hello, love. I'm just at uh, Jed and Sheila's house listening to Jack's new song, Let Him Be. Let It Be. Let It Be. And, well, apparently he started up again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. What do you know? Listen, I'll, I'll, I'll call you back when it's over, all right? Oh, all right, then. Yeah, OK. Right, carry on broadcasting, young man. Maybe start after the first bit. I've heard it three times Just now. Just OK, I'm going to go from the top. Please yourself, son. Then maybe we can have summer song. Christ, this is Let It Be! You're the first people on Earth to hear this song. This is like watching Da Vinci paint the Mona Lisa right in front of your bloody eyes. Can you not just be quiet for a single second? Oh, that would be Marge. Oh, she oh, said she was going to come oh, round to us. So every time I see that, it cracks me up. I imagine the hardest thing about doing comedy is you must have to do a scene five, six, seven times. Is it, can, is it funny on set? When you're working with Mira and Sanj, it is, you know, people <laughs> who really know what they're doing. You, they find something new every time. Like, Leave It Be was just, she made it up. It, it came, came out, you know. I had to try and keep a straight face. Um, you learn so much working with actors like that, you know. And uh, directors like Adam McKay, people who, who, who know how to find the comedy, to mine the comedy in moments like that. It's amazing. In terms of uh, your, you know, where you're placed in terms of your career, Obviously, what you've managed to do is, you know, drama, comedy, you know, huge area stuff. And I asked you to choose a film that, you know, is really important to you. You chose three films. You chose a trilogy. Mm -hmm. What did you choose? I chose Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy. Um, just three of my favourite films. And they, they did. They changed a lot for me. And it's quite nice to be doing it in this cinema, because the cinema has a lot to do with it, about... Nine years ago, when the third one came out, I've been a BFI member for years, they, they had a preview of the third movie. It came up in the brochure. I thought, I've, I've been meaning to watch the other two for years. I'm going to book myself a ticket, and then I've got about three weeks to watch the other two. And then, obviously, I waited till the very last day. <laughs> uh, downloaded the films uh, and, and watched them. And so I ended up watching all three in a day, because I came here in the evening and watched. 
and I, it, you know, it, just the 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 honesty and the truth in that in that relationship. At that time, I was very <laughs> unromantic. I was very, you know, bitter. I hadn't had much luck in in love, <laughs> and was just like, oh, what's the point? And I hated rom coms, and it was all rubbish. <laughs> and uh, and then to to have these movies, which just could be well, kind of classified as rom-coms, but really there's something else entirely. Um, it's just about two people connecting. And, and that connection is kind of so truthful and, and, and believable and, and heartfelt in, and profound, I think. You know, uh, the conversations they're having, especially the first one, are so grand. They're talking about existential things. But she says in that in one of the moments in the first movie, you know, if there is a God, then it's in this space between us. It's about the striving for a connection, and it just spoke to me on on a real level. And um, yeah, I love I love the movies. I could watch them over and over again. I think it's a perfect trilogy. Um, I'm worried that there'll be another one. I think T Toy Story was a perfect trilogy. Now there's four of them. I love the fourth one, but I still think mm. of them as a trilogy. We're going to show two clips. The first clip we're going to show is from the first, from Before Sunrise. This is the first meeting of the characters. And the reason this is kind of a big deal is I reviewed this film when it came out. Uh, originally, I was working for Q magazine then, so I was still kind of, you know, up and I remember they gave me a whole page to write about it because I came out of the screening and I rang them up and said, this thing is genius, it's brilliant, you know, stick with me. And it's the idea that we've then grown with the characters. So this is, this is where it all begins. Do you have any idea what they were arguing about? Do, do you speak English? Yeah. No. I'm sorry, my German is not very good. Have you ever heard that as couples get older, they lose their ability to hear each other? No. Well, supposedly, men lose their ability to hear higher pitch sounds, and women eventually lose hearing on the low end. I guess they sort of nullify each other or something. I guess. Nature's way of allowing couples to grow old together without killing each other. What are you reading? Oh, yeah. How about you? Um. Look, I was thinking about going to the lounge car sometime soon. Would you like to come with me? Yeah. Okay. We were just running that through in the test, and Nick pointed out that one of the lovely things about this is as they're walking away, he looks over his shoulder like, Did this, is this happening? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but it's, it's so natural. It yeah. does feel like they are just striking up a conversation. There's an idealism to it now, actually, because uh, they, now they'd just be on their phones and they wouldn't go anywhere near it. <laughs> they just keep their heads in their phones, probably, and not talk to each other. And, and uh, it's a lovely moment, you know, that, that someone could actually connect if they just looked up. And then they spend the first movie walking and talking and discussing, you know, matters existential. And then the second movie, they meet up later on, but this ambiguity about where this is going still lasts all the way through the second movie. And this isn't a plot spoiler. I'm going to play you this scene from the very end of the second movie. When he's been to visit her, he has to go back home to his life because he has a plane to catch. So this is a scene from the very, very end of the second film. Here we go. She was so funny in concert. She, she, would, uh, she would be right in the middle of a song and then, you know, stop and, 
and, uh, and walk from the piano all the way to the edge of the stage, like really slowly. And she start talking to someone in the audience. Oh yeah, baby. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love you too. <laughs> and then she'd walk back, took her time, no hurry, you know. She had that big, cute ass. <laughs> she would move, woo. <laughs> and then she would uh, go back to the piano and play some more. And, <laughs> and then she would, uh, I don't know, just start another song in the middle of another, you know, like stop again and be like, oh, you over there. Can you move that fan? Uh-huh. Ooh, you're cute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Baby, you are gonna miss that plane. I know. It's a perfect ending to a movie, isn't it? That just I know. That's all you need to know. <laughs> it's, it's, the it's more weird. I think about it, the more I think that that is up there with, you know, Shut Up and Deal and, you know, Nobody's Perfect. It's just, if you get the end of a movie right, it's a really complicated thing. But that is such a good ending. Yeah. You're going to miss the play. I know. And then j the way that it all comes together with the third one and... Uh, one thing that I was astounded by was the, this this moment in the first, just after that scene this, uh, from the first movie, when he makes the decision to ask her, "Come with me." And this is crazy, but uh, come off the train. We're going to walk around Vienna all day, and he sells it to her by saying, "I'm a time traveller." Um, um, just imagine that you know, 20 years in the future, are you going to regret it? Sort of thing. And then at the end of the third one. They've had this big argument, and the way that he comes to her to make reparations is saying, "I'm a time traveler. I'm, you know, I'm that guy from, from 20. I know I'm going for 20 years in the future or something." This idea of time travel, which Linklater loves, as we know, but the way that he uses that, it's almost like he knew what he was going to do back when he made the first movie, and he brought it all the way back round. And I, I just the way he he's told this story over time is it's just stunning. It's a stunning use of cinema, I think. So what are you doing now in your incredibly busy career? I'm not that busy right now, actually. I, I'm, I have nothing in the diary. Wow. Um, in a good way? Yeah. I, I've, I've been re I feel like I've been really lucky over the last few years. I've had a really lovely run of wonderful projects that I've learned so much from. And I'm still learning so much as an actor. And I, I just want to make sure the next one is the right one. And, uh, you know, it, it's a sort of a position of privilege to have choice. I just want to make sure I make the right choice. So. But, yeah, I'm waiting for that right thing to come along. James Bond? <laughs> uh, I think everyone would agree I'm clearly made to be James Bond. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Probably. Would you do it? I mean, if, 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 it, if, if the chart, would you do it? If. If. No, hey, you know. <laughs> So it's such a laughable concept. But, um, so yeah. I think you'd be great as yeah. Bond. I think you'd be great as Bond. I think, well, they're clearly going to have to go in a very different direction. For <laughs> Why not? Yeah. I wouldn't, I, I, I'm not going to sniff at it. I just think <laughs> the concept of me, of Barbara Broccoli calling me, is, uh, it would make a great movie. <laughs> the movie should be someone calling me to be James Bond. That would be the movie. Okay. Well, look, when it happens, I want you to remember that we suggested it here first. So when you do the press conference, you say, I owe it all to Mark and the BFI. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, Kamesh Patel. Thank you.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that front row seat at the MK3D show recorded recently at the BFI South Bank. On next week's show, you'll hear from Joanna Hogg talking about her new release, The Souvenir Part 2, and her love of disaster movies. If you like the sound of MK3D and you'd like to come along, well, go to the BFI website and check out tickets. Although, do bear in mind, they sell out pretty quickly. If you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, check out our Patreon page, stay safe, keep watching the skies. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.